Tracy, I would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands and waters of the Wurundjeri and Burung people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners and custodians of the land upon we, which we live and work. We pay respects to elders past and present and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be listening to this broadcast. We recognize the continued resilience of First Nations people in the face of ongoing colonization and settlement. We acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. How are we all doing today? Very good, uh, Grace. It's getting a bit lighter out there, which is nice. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm very much uh, getting excited. Daylight savings is coming along. Yeah, it's coming next week, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, next week, Monday, I think, October 1st. So yeah, we. I feel like daylight saving just ended quite not too long ago. So time passed by really quickly. But yeah, how was your week so far? Uh, yeah, it's been an interesting one, Grace. Um, those who will know, I do a bit of local football calling and uh, I got to see the last of the local football uh, finish off on the Saturday afternoon at uh, Ballarat. And uh, boy, oh boy, it was a good game of football. Highly recommend to go back and watch that if you like to. Um, and probably one for the sporting record to to track down about the stories in between that grace because oh my god there was some stories in it uh, but yeah it's been a, it's been an interesting week we've got the big news as we know um, Daniel Andrews is no longer which is which is fascinating we'll get to that uh, but we've got an interesting uh, show today grace yeah so first up I'm going to be speaking to Kay Shields who is the member of the No Third Taller Runway Coalition discussing poverty in Australia and also in regards to the runway developments. Patrick will be speaking to PhD University of New South Wales PhD candidates, Sydney Nora Campbell from the Evolution and Ecology Research Centre at the School of Biological Earth and Environmental Sciences. So that's yeah, talking about all things kangaroos. And then we're gonna be diving into a conversation with Koran Motamadi Medi who is an Iranian researcher living in Nam, speaking to us about the women life freedom movement in Iran. Yeah, it's um, some uh, great stuff for the show today. And we're now... Um, Grace, you got one more. you got one more to me. <laughs> We've got more. Yeah, <laughs> and so lastly, Claudia will be speaking to Associate Professor Janine Lane, who is a Wurdjuri writer, teacher and academic from Southwest New South Wales, who is currently a writer in resistance at University of Melbourne. She's a support, passionate supporter of Voice to Parliament, so they'll be, she'll be joining us to talk about respect and truth and messaging in the upcoming referendum. Lovely. Well, we'll go to the headlines now. As you know, that uh, Daniel Andrews has resigned as Premier of Victoria. The news come on Tuesday afternoon during a surprise press conference outside of Parliament. Andrews announced that his duties as Premier will end on this afternoon and it's expected that Deputy Premier Jacinta Allen will be appointed Premier. Andrews' resignation comes after three election wins and nine years in office, making him the state's long, longest-serving Premier. 
After winning the election last year, Andrews declared multiple times that he would see out a third term as Premier and contest an election in 2026, but has said yesterday that he's changed his mind and said the role of the Premier has taken a toll on him. Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese said he was surprised when being told of Andrews' resignation and described Andrews as a builder in education, health, infrastructure, housing and praised his role during COVID-19. However, opposition leader John Pesuto claims Andrews is standing down because, of, because things in Victoria are falling apart, listing the intergenerational burden of state debt and interest repayments and state taxes as legacies of the outgoing Premier. Eight officials have been detained as Libya awaits an inquiry into the recent deadly floods, which saw two dams outside the city of Derma collapse last month. It sent a wall of water several metres high through the city and leaving over 3,000 people dead and around 10,000 still missing. The prosecutor questioned and arrested former and current officials with the Water Resources Authority and Dams Management Authority over allegations that mismanagement, negligence and mistakes contribute to the disaster. The eight officials did not provide evidence to spare them from potential charges, and prosecutors ordered them jail pending the completion of the investigation. The US said it's disappointed by the absence of the Solomon Islands Prime Minister from a two-day summit aimed at improving Washington ties to the region. Members of the Pacific Islands Forum gathered at the White House for the second year in a row for the summit, where President Joe Biden urged leaders to recommit to each other. However, Prime Minister of the Solomon Islands, Massimo Sirogwe, declined to attend the summit, saying he needed to attend to domestic issues, which has considered to blow to those diplomatic efforts. Sirogwe has attended last year's summit, but initially resigned, st- resisted, sorry, signing a joint declaration being issued between the US and Pacific Island leaders. He has since visited China, he has since visited China to meet President Xi Jinping and last week told the UN General Assembly of his country's increasingly close ties to Beijing. The White House used the Pacific Island Summit to announce it had formally begun recognising the Cook Islands and the Niue as sovereign and independent states, meaning diplomatic relations will begin with, with both. And there are all your headlines for this Wednesday morning. We will now uh, head to a little break, but up next we'll be talking all things airports and poverty with Grace. Vibe Union is bringing exciting, ongoing showcases of local talent across Melbourne. This creative collective provides a supportive platform to upcoming artists, hosting poetry open mic nights, intimate singer-songwriter evenings, and hip-hop showcases. Head along to one of their events for a welcoming night of creativity, or see how you can get involved at vibeunion.com.au. Vibe Union is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Now, we're going to be discussing about the third taller runway, which is in plans to be built in the the upcoming future. There's no expected when it's going to officially happen yet, but there have been discussions. So... I'm going to be speaking to Kay Shields, who is the member of the No Third Tolerance Coalition. And we're going to be discussing about, in in regards to this plan with Poverty in Australia, and about its developments. Good morning, Kay. How are you? Good morning, Craig. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Yes. So, Kay, before we 
get into the details of the poverty in Australia, what are the communal concerns with the third one, runway being built and why is it not a good idea? Okay, so Melbourne Airport is the second busiest in Australia. It has no night curfew and flights have increased by 61% from 1985 to 2018 um, until because of COVID stopped that really. And its sound footprint increased by 156 square kilometres from 2013 to 2018. The No Third Teller Runway is a coalition united in the belief that the expansion of Melbourne Airport to accommodate a third runway will impact Melbournians severely. Um, Each member may have a particular concern, Mm. such as noise harm from the parallel runway that is being observed at Brisbane currently, increased emissions in a climate emergency, the loss of trees and grasses that provide habitat for local threatened species, such as the swift parrot, and the growling grass frog, uh, big builds of infrastructure and roads that increase urban heating, harm to student learning mm. from excessive noise, the recognised health impacts from living near large airports, and the risk of serious illness connected to toxic land, air and water from emissions. We're in the coalition for different reasons, but we're all united in the belief the third runway must not go ahead because of multiple harms to this community. Mm, I see. So if this runway is built, it will affect many suburban areas with high poverty rates and this is especially affecting, will affect northwest of Melbourne. So there was this VCOS report that you had you had a read about that tells discusses in regards to this so what does it tell us about the poverty rate who who is most affected by this yeah so the um the vcos is an independent body that advocates for uh, a victoria free from poverty and disadvantage and its report said that poverty increases other forms of social inequality and discrimination especially for people with a disability and for people with a background other than English. Um, Many children in Victoria, in fact, the figure was 216,000 children in Victoria live in poverty. But some people, and for some parts of Victoria, the disadvantage is worsening, not improving. Um, Worsening disadvantage was reported in Hume, Brimbank and Melton, that make up three of the top five council areas uh, most affected by poverty. And all those council areas are close to the airport. Coincidentally, uh, seven of the ten suburbs listed with the highest poverty rate for children under 15 are situated around the airport and its flight path. Uh, The suburbs listed were St Albans North, St Albans South, Roxburgh Park South Summerton, that's one group, Roxburgh Park North, Meadow Heights, Lord Meadows, and Campbellfield Coolaroo was another subgroup. These suburbs have entrenched pockets of disadvantage. We're not saying everybody in those suburbs are disadvantaged, but there are pockets of disadvantage mm. already, and they will be further impacted by flight if the flight path goes ahead. I see. And so noise pollution is 
actually one of the major concerns, like the main concerns when it comes to runways and airports. What what are the financial consequences that these poorer communities are going to have to bear in when affecting their health and lifestyle? Yeah, well, look, people do focus on noise and noise is harmful, but there are a lot of negative concerns that will impact on their finances. So the negative health, health consequences from living near a large airport are well documented. Airport communities have higher rates of health concerns, such as greater percentage of infants born prematurely or with low birth weight, mm. high hospitalisation rates for asthma, stroke, lung disease, heart disease and diabetes. Ultrafine particles, or commonly referred to as USPs, are released into the air from aircraft and road traffic and these are the most harmful of all emissions into the air because they are microscopic in size. UFPs enter the lungs and the brain, causing diseases such as early cognitive decline, lung cancer and brain cancer. They've also been implicated in the spread of COVID. The method of um, how it's done is has not been uh, confirmed, but the correlation between the spread of COVID and UFPs is positive. And USPs can be carried by prevailing winds up to 20 kilometres from airports. Poor health is not just feeling unwell. It impacts on the ability of people to work or attend school. It puts constraints on time and energy for caregivers to look after people who are sick. It increases financial hardship due to the cost of doctors, hospitals, admissions and medications. Oh, okay. Uh, so, and obviously, this is also uh, this will affect many children, and we we know that health issues and not financial consequences, but also just health issues, will highly affect children in the future. So, we and in regards to this project, the government has also been trying so far and getting community feedback. So, what has the has the government done anything with it so far? Is it working? Look. Um to be honest, um, the prospect of a third runway is being pushed by private enterprise mm-hmm. with the support of the state government for the supposed benefits to the economy. Uh, the coalition has been trying to engage politicians, but it's been a very hard road. Um, the majority of politicians from both the government and the opposition have maintained a wall of silence on this runway. Uh, suburbs with pockets of entrenched disadvantage are being asked to absorb more impacts from this runway. And successive, the VECOS report said that successive state governments have not addressed this disadvantage in the northwest of Melbourne. And in fact, government continues to disadvantage us by choosing to support projects such as the Northwest Runway. Um, we have been writing to our ministers visiting Minister King at her um, electoral office in uh, Ballarat, uh, doing a lot of agitating and getting very little uh, feedback from politicians at all. Um, Some politicians have agreed to let us meet with staff members, but um, I'm not going to name any politicians, but uh, we have, you know, very few have given us um, time to meet. So uh, basically, it's a bit of a brick wall. Mm, definitely. 
Okay, unfortunately, we are running out of time soon. Just, but just one last question for you: What can listeners do to help? And what's the what's the best option that now that we have? The listeners, um, look, get active in your community. If you're worried, ring, write, and express your concern as an individual, as a group, or as a community. Um, do some simple actions like take a photo saying no third runway and send it to Catherine King. Send it to your local federal member, your local state member. Uh, come get a poster from the coalition saying no third runway and put put it on your fence. Join the no third runway coalition and start to learn about the harms that will impact people from this third runway and especially people who may not be aware of it because the North West is a very multicultural community and language has not been provided and, and information has not been provided to these people in their language. So, um, yeah, we, we need to make ourselves and others more aware of the impact of what is happening here and its effect on the health and future of ourselves and children mm. in, in the Northwest, especially. Yep. Awesome. Thank you so much, Kay. It's been lovely having you on our show. Thank you very much, Grace. Thanks for giving us time. No problem. Bye-bye. No bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye. And that was Kay Shields, who is the member of the No Dead Toller Runway Coalition discussing poverty in Australia. And in regards of this, with the possible Devilments if with the Tolo Runway. Very uh, interesting, Grace. It's a big issue. Um, someone who does live out uh, that side of way, I, I do know how important uh, that third runway uh, is to the local community in terms of the inf- impacts it could have. Um, but also, um, there's a, there's also an interesting space going with the whole airport anyway in terms of extra development and the likes. Anyway, we're going to move on now. We're going to play a bit of a song and we're going to go to uh, El Pablo Persian. And then after that, we'll be speaking about kangaroos.
And that was El Pablo Persian. And that's just a bit of a taster of what you'll get up at 10 past 8, where Claudia will be speaking uh, to an Iranian protester about the uh, situation which is going on in Iran right now. But we're going to go into another track. It's called Are You Looking At Me by Colin Hay. Well, I love the Lone Ranger. I love that Dennis Law. Him and George Best. I sure knew how to kick a ball. I wanted to be a cowboy and learn to crack a whip. Stand up in that lonely street to six guns on my hip. Along the mighty Beatles came and everyone went, ah! They could play and sing and everything. And of course that John could draw. Well, that was it for me. I never once looked back. And tricks to learn and waves to catch. I had a plan of attack. Are you looking at me? Are you looking at me? Are you looking at me? Are you looking at me, pal? south where the surf came crashing in from black and white to color from innocence to sin it was summer in december blowing heat waves in my mind people talking funny some cruel and some were kind from the crackle of the cane to the frown of a big black snake from the breakers at bondi and down to wallaga lake from the sound of a million fly screen doors closing on the past, like that chimney the fires couldn't burn, I was built to last. Are you looking at me? Are you looking at me? Are you looking at me? Are you looking at me, pal? across the ocean I was number one people gave me everything and I didn't need a gun walking down that avenue I never felt so alive people calling out my name and I'd only just arrived there was a tightrope walking bagpiper in the middle of Central Park steam was rising from the ground I wore my cape out after dark I had myself a moment my day out in the sun It's an unfinished story But it's more than just begun And I know more than one thing But not more than two or three And I'll tell you if you'll listen And I'll tell you for free It's no life being a cowboy And eating all them beans Coffee's cold and the herd is gone And all you've got's your dreams you can always put your spurs back on, but save them for Halloween. You're better off heading north or somewhere you've never been.
You might have heard about the Community Radio Plus app, but it's only when you start using it that you'll wonder how you lived without it. You can listen to us wherever you are. At home, work, driving. On public transport, gardening, protesting, or even in the bath. Just search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your app. And that was Are You Looking At Me by Colin Hay. You're on 3CR, 855 AM. Uh, Up next, we'll be speaking to Nora Campbell from the University of Sydney. She's a PhD candidate discussing all things kangaroos. Um, Grace, have you you, um, ventured out and seen some kangaroos in your your time in Australia? Yeah, of course. Um, uh, I actually, when I was on a holiday with my cousin, when she came over to Melbourne, we... Surprisingly, actually, saw one small. I think I'm not sure if it's considered an adult. I'm guessing it's an adult because it's uh, it was it had a womb. So because uh, the pocket, the pocket, the pouch. Yes, yeah, the pouch. So you got the, joeys and you've got the mum kangaroo. Yeah. So and we actually saw the kangaroo on in in the den, in the Dandurong ranges, and um, we were hiking. Actually, we were going. We were just about to come down after going up about a thousand steps of the Kodak Hill. Um, and yeah, it was surprisingly surprising to see a kangaroo up in the mountains because usually they're on the flatlands, from what I know. Yeah. Um, and of course, I've seen them before, like years ago, but this was actually the first one that I've seen in a very, very long time. And yeah, it was really adorable. But personally, I prefer wombats or kangaroos. Okay. Um, okay, listen, there you go. Grace yeah. likes uh, wombats instead of kangaroos. <laughs> yeah, because I think wombats are cuter. So, and they're so adorable. My cousin took a picture of it when she went to the zoo, and they're, they're the cutest thing ever. So, I personally prefer wombats. So, yeah, I'm surprised you're not you haven't had any discussion with wombats, but it's all good. Kangaroos are um, one of the main animals in Australia. So, well, we'll find go. we'll find out about more kangaroos and wombats as Nora Campbell will join me on the line. Um, there you go, listeners. Grace likes. Uh, Grace likes wombats, which is interesting. Um, we've got uh, University of New South Wales PhD candidate Nora Campbell on the line. Nora, how are you this morning? Oh, good, thank you. Very good. Are you a uh, wombat or a kangaroo fan? <laughs> I think I have to be a kangaroo fan because that's what I study, but I do agree wombats are pretty cute. Yes, they definitely are. Um, Nora, you've done a lot of research into the behaviour of kangaroos. Um, just give me an idea of what this is all about. Yeah, absolutely. So we, my, my PhD supervisor, Terry Ord, and I um, took photographs of kangaroos over six years, um, and so of the same group of kangaroos. And using this really big data set, we were able to have individually identify each kangaroo and then look at what their associations were like over each year and how their friendships and relationships changed, which was really exciting. Yeah, definitely. You know, what does what does that mean in terms of the, the social side of things? Um, it was something I found interesting in your work was uh, kangaroo mothers are more social and more caring to joeys. That was something that a lot of us, um, a lot of in the science world and especially the general public thought was the opposite. Just give me an idea into that. Yeah, definitely. So when you look at um, kangaroos on a population level, without looking at the individual kangaroos, it does really look like the females when they have joeys tend to be sort of isolating and distancing themselves from the rest of the kangaroos. But because we looked at them on an individual level, we were able to see that while they might have had smaller groups, they were actually associating more frequently with other individuals. So they were sort of had more friends, even though they were spending um, less time in large groups. 
And so we think that's what the discrepancy is between our study and previous studies, but it's just an interesting different perspective on what the kangaroos are up to. Yeah, definitely. It's a bit of a hierarchy system when it comes to kangaroos. Like I see out the backyard of uh, my holiday home, I've got a holiday home down South Gippsland Way and uh, very, very fortunate to have a great view of, of it, Native Australia and um, you see the mother and, and then you've got the father side of things, but the, the also the, the the junior males and the junior females. How does, how does that actually work out? It's actually quite interesting because kangaroos don't follow the same social structure that you'll see in any other animal. They've got a really loose hierarchy-based structure. So it's not, it's not a strict dominance-based one where the males will, that are larger always on top. What it generally looks like is the larger males have more opportunity to mate the smaller males will just get around that by hanging out with as many females as possible and trying to mate as much as possible, whereas the large ones, you know, can chase them away because they've got that size on them. Um, but it's, it's sort of more of a loose, a loose base structure, yeah. Yeah, I'm, ju- I'm just thinking it's, some- it's something uh, out of the, the real human world, uh, Nora, in terms of um, what goes on a, on a regular weekend basis. I'm just thinking <laughs> in the back of my head what goes on in the sense, the way you were describing it to me. Um, that's just fascinating. What do you... What are you hoping to get out of this research? And uh, also, you know, where do you think this research could go in the future about kangaroos and um, a national animal? Well, what I'm hoping is that we can really understand a lot more about the social lives of kangaroos because we do know a lot about them. They're one of our native animals and one of our most famous ones. So there have been a lot of studies, but the social aspect is something that's only been really picked up in the last couple of years Um, on this level. So I think it's really important to just understand as much as we possibly can about the social lives of all of our native species, really. And so as for what we're doing next, well, we've um, added, since this project ended in 2020, we've added two more years of data um, onto the end. So we've ended 2021 and 2022. And as you might remember, we had that massive drought that sort of ended in early 2020. Um, And then we also had uh, three years of incredibly high rainfall. So what we're going to look at next is how that low and high rainfall has affected the the kangaroo's population structure and also potentially their social lives. Yeah, definitely. What does um, increased water um, do for kangaroos or less water do for kangaroos, Nora? Well, less water has been studied a lot. So we know that um, the kangaroos will have to spread out further to find food, um, which will sort of make them clump into smaller groups instead of, so they'll have less friends, I suppose. Um, mm. And they'll also, you know, the, the males are more likely to leave and go find a new population, which puts them at increased risk of being hit by cars. Um, and you know, just a general increased mortality risk is the worse the drought gets. Um, but there actually hasn't been too many studies done on extremely high rainfall, and I think that's true for a lot of Australian native species. Um, so we've got a couple of... I've seen a couple of studies done that look at parasite levels, um, but for the most part, there really hasn't been much, so it's kind of exciting to see what we're going to find. We're just in the, in the stages of doing the data analysis now. Yeah, that sounds awesome. In terms of that data analysis, what... Give the listeners an idea of what that process looks like and um, also what, what it looks like on a daily basis. Um, well, so what we, what we get when we, when we look at our data is we get these huge, massive spreadsheets that take forever to go through. Um, and so the ones for the project we've just completed with the sociality, um, we've looked at who, which kangaroos were hanging out with other kangaroos and how many times they formed, how many times they hung out with them in any given day or any given year. Um, and so once we've done that, we have to do some coding, which I think a lot of 
ecologists will agree is a bit unfortunate, um, but we, we have to go through, we use a program called R, um, and we have to do some coding to try work out the statistics behind all that. And it's not particularly exciting, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, it's always exciting. Stats are always interesting, no matter what it is. And kangaroos would have their own interesting statistics. I'm just thinking, do they get a hardball get at one point here, Nora? I'm giving a bit of a sports sports analogy to this one. Um, in terms of in terms of also that, do, do you um, do you do you name them at all, or do you just leave them as um, number one, oh, two, three, that's four, an five? Interesting question. I did start to name them. I was naming them after my friends for a bit, and then I was just giving them names based on what I thought they looked like. Um, but then I, we had 130 individuals throughout the entire project, and I just started not remembering the names, whereas I found it was easier. Like, if, if I recognised a kangaroo, and I, I didn't remember the name, but I might remember it's one of the 40s, and that I'd only have 10 kangaroos to look through to work out which one it was. <laughs> so, uh. unfortunately, it was easier just to give them numbers. But I still remember some of the numbers, um, so clearly it was a better system. Yeah, definitely. And in terms of um, in terms of also the sustainability of kangaroos, where do you see that going, given the fact that um, the population is, is so high and so vast? Oh, yeah. See, that's an interesting question. So, yeah, kangaroos have this massive population, especially south of the dingo fence, where there's, we've gotten rid of all the major natural predators for them. Um, it's quite convenient. They also really adapt well to urban environments because we, you know, they've got golf courses and we've put out lawns for them. And, you know, on farms, they've got these drinking troughs. So we've sort of created the perfect environment for them. And unfortunately, that does um, allow them to sometimes go a bit beyond the carrying capacity of their environment. So um, management-wise, I know in the ACT, they do a yearly cull of some kangaroos. So they look at things like how big the population is, what kind of um, endangered species are in the area, because when kangaroos get to a big population size, um, they, they eat mostly grasses and small shrubs, so they can really... Um, estimate the, the natural population of grasses and shrubs, which is bad for the plants, but then it also um, it gets rid of some habitat for small mammals. Um, and so they'll look at projections of how, how much rain we're going to get in the next couple of years and, you know, all that sort of thing. And so I know they do conduct a small cull over there, and I think some other states do it too. Um, and then there's also the option of eating kangaroos for food, which I know a lot of people have explored. Um, and that's another interesting one because kangaroo meat is quite healthy um, and it's also... Um, you, you can't really farm kangaroos in the traditional sense, so they would have to be wild caught, which some would consider more ethical. Um, some people wouldn't. That's another bit yeah. of another debate. <laughs> yeah. That's, a, that's another discussion for another day, Nora, because I've got a feeling there'll be a few listeners out there arguing, well, I'm, I'm not a big fan of kangaroo meat. I like my regular regular steak, or those who are vegetarian or vegan might, might argue the opposite opportunity of well hang on a minute they're a poor animal um we've got to let them live their yeah, life which i can definitely I can a very see divisive as well. topic yes. i'm not sure i want to comment on it now Fair. just laying out the options and there's also the um the possibility that once we start um eating kangaroo meat on a massive level if we end up doing it that will end up exploiting kangaroos the same way we exploit a lot of our natural resources Mm, yeah. um, so you know, there's there's arguments on all sides. <laughs> yes, definitely, Nora. Where do you where do you see? Um, it was interesting how you referred back to how we we've, we've given them the environment to live in. You know, golf courses are the great example. Someone who's a keen golfer like myself, um, and listeners will know, you go on a golf course anywhere across Victoria or anywhere part of Australia, you'll see kangaroos uh, hobbing about while you're trying to tee off, and it's the bizarre situation where you tee off and. 
um, the, the kangaroos are in the way of where you hit the ball. Um, and <laughs> I hope, it, hope you don't accidentally hit them. No, I don't, Nora. I'm, I'm, as listeners uh, will know, um, I, I do shank one into the trees a few times, so we don't have any issues there. <laughs> but in terms of in terms of that, do, do you get a little bit worried that we've given them that so much um, ground that the that there's that overpopulation and um, you know a, a bit of a concern there, or do you think it's like just it's just how it rolls um, in society now? It is a bit worrying because, I mean, I suppose on some level this could have happened naturally, but we've, as, as with a lot of things, humans have accelerated a natural process. Um, and the, I suppose the main issue is you don't see this so much on golf courses, but when there's the spill out of the kangaroos get too large for the golf course and then they move out into the urban environment. Um, when it comes to a big drought after several years of prosperity, like the one we saw a couple of years ago, um, there's just too many kangaroos. And when the grass starts to go away, that's most of what they eat. And so it just really, a lot of them will starve. I've seen some pretty horrific videos of um, kangaroos just sort of really being quite skeletal um, from videos from the last drought. So it is a bit worrying. Yeah, I think black the Black Summer fires, we did see that uh, all our great Australian uh, animals were impacted by that, the koala especially, but also the kangaroo. And um, on Kangaroo Island in particular, um, I can remember seeing the, the awful footage of what was going on there in terms of that population of kangaroos, um, not just humans, but kangaroos having to flee, flee the fires and um, mm. that island. Yeah, if, if you know it, Nora, it's, and listeners will know, it's not a big island. Um, so it does. It, it do, if it does see a fire, you know, there's only one part of the town you can get to for safety, for example, and um, that can cause um, that causes major issues in terms of you know logistics and the likes. But also, if you also have a population of kangaroos on top of it, well, boy, oh boy, it makes another <laughs> a, another tricky um, scenario. Yeah, the the fires were rough for a whole bunch of animals, and they're just now a lot of animals are just now starting to recover um, and plants as well. Yeah, uh, Nora, where do you where do you see your future in terms of your research, and um, where can we find your work? Well, I'm from the University of New South Wales, and so a lot of my work will be through them because I'm that's why I'm doing my PhD. Um, I'd like to keep. I mean, my, the rest of my PhD will be on kangaroos, and I think I'd like to keep doing stuff on kangaroos when I'm done. I'd really like to work in urban conservation and help solve some of those issues of animals being over or under abundance in urban areas, which I think would be really interesting. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. And I wish you best of luck with it all uh, here at 3CR. I hope it all goes to plan. Oh, thank you. Um, um, uh, you know, it's, it's great that you're looking into this space because I think it's just something that definitely needs to be looked into uh, into the future. But um, we've, got that, we've run out of time here, Nora, so um, I really appreciate your time and uh, hopefully can speak in the future about more about kangaroos. Absolutely. Maybe when I get my next paper out. <laughs> Perfect. Um, that was Nora Campbell there from the University of Sydney, uh, PhD student discussing kangaroos. And uh, that is all. You might have heard about the Community Radio Plus app, but it's only when you start using it that you'll wonder how you lived without it. You can listen to us wherever you are, at home, work, driving, on public transport, gardening, protesting, or even in the bath. Just search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your app. And you're on 3CR 855 AM. Grace, you got something for me? Yeah, so the there's this event happening next 
Saturday on the 7th of October at 1pm. So whatever the outcome is for the upcoming referendum, it's actually vital to build momentum to win demands for First Nation activists and the grassroots movement have been long advocated. So keys among them is that all of the 339 recommendations of the 1991 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody must be implemented now. This includes the recommendation that imprisonment must be the last resort. The Freedom Socialist Party and Radical Women will be marching with the Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne at this vital rally called by the Black Sovereign Movement. So as well as calling for the key demand, we will also honour the memory of the many First Nations people who have tragically died in police and prison custody. They are demanding the urgent reform to the Victoria Harsh Bail Laws, which run directly counter to Royal Commission recommendations, which is a presumption that should be in favour of bail. So yes, you should be so you should be implementing the Pogroms Law. Meet meet for this event at 12.45pm near the Sunken Library Statute close to the corner of Swanson and Latrobe Street. So if you have more information and if you want to march with March with this, uh, with <laughs> yeah. You can contact freedom dot party at ozemail o z e m a i l dot com dot au or look at the play cards on on the day. So yeah, next Saturday, seventh of October at one p.m. There will be a National Day of Action to stop Black deaths in custody. Thanks very much, Grace. You might have heard about the Community Radio Plus app, but it's only when you start using it that you'll wonder how you lived without it. You can listen to us wherever you are. At home, work, driving. On public transport, gardening, protesting, or even in the bath. Just search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. And that is 8.55am on your dial. You're on 3CR. This is 3CR Breakfast for your Wednesday. We're going to go to a song now called The Lost Song by The Cat Empire. But I lost all of them And I've been searching in the night And I've been searching in the rain I tried to find them But they disappeared They walked away They dressed in black They left my side And all I say is that I wasted time when I look for them For now I know that things gone past Are never to be found again No, never, never again I had nine lives But lost all of them Hmm
never finished it And I've been searching for the thought And I've been searching in the haze I try all days to remember it But now the blueprint in my mind has gone My mind forgot the colour of direction And my eyes, they see the hands that could have built That could have constructed the empire in my mind The empire I'll never find I had a plan, but that was where it ended We know you love listening to 3CR, but we also know that many of you haven't downloaded the Community Radio Plus app yet. The app lets you tune in anywhere and share the station with your friends. So, show the love and share the love and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. And you are back on 3CR 855 AM. That was the lost song by the Cat Empire. Well, we've got a, uh, we've got someone back finally after a few after a few weeks off. Uh, Claudia Craig is back. Welcome back, Claudia. Thank you very much, Pat. It's uh, nice to be back in the studio. I had a lovely break up in Exmouth in Western Australia. Went and checked out the Ningaloo Reef. Didn't see uh, any koalas or kangaroos or wombats <laughs> but I did see lots of wallabies and beautiful marine life saw some whales playing out in the ocean yeah beautiful part of the world and then went down to Perth uh, for a lovely week caught up with some friends and family so yeah great to be back in the studio today and our next segment is uh, returning to a subject that we've talked about before on breakfast which is the life women freedom movement in Iran and as listeners uh, know from our previous discussions on this, the movement led by Iranian women is in response to the death of Masa Amini last year and has sparked attention worldwide and become a symbol of resistance against Iranian oppression. I spoke with Kamran Motamedi, an Iranian researcher living in Nam, who observed that the movement is indeed remarkable but says protest as a form of resistance in Iran began well before Masa Amini's death and is not confined to fighting just women's issues. He also says that Iranian society is diverse and not all sectors have responded equally to state oppression. So I spoke with him on Monday and uh, had this 
extended discussion and we're going to bring this to you in uh, over two weeks. So stay tuned next week. Uh, we'll be hearing then about the role of misinformation and Western imperialism in relation to Iranian resistance. But right now we're going to go to Komran Matamedi. Kamran Motamedi. I'm an Iranian immigrant and I research on intersection of development and gender in Iran. To be honest, presenting a comprehensive picture of the past year and uh, evaluating it is uh, it's a challenging task, primarily due to its uh, multidimensionality and complexity. So we've got a number of different areas to talk about. Let's dive in a little bit. Can you elaborate firstly on protest and how that has evolved in recent years? Yes, certainly. You know, you know, we've seen a shift in uh, Iranian, as we can say, Iran political landscape began around 2016. So period to that, uh, many Iranian leaned towards reformism as the preferred path for political change. Uh, reformist politician like uh, President Khatami enjoyed substantial support with millions of votes, uh, more than 20 million votes. However, over time, uh, reformist politics began to perceived as primarily centered on participating in election and the lesser evil logic. Unfortunately, there was no significant reform and the political atmosphere of the country became more closed and the economic situation worsened. So since uh, January 2016, a significant portion of marginalized, disadvantaged and impoverished segment of society who had long been neglected by middle class and the wealthy uh, started to revolt. They made it clear that they would no longer hit uh, formal political parties and group within the Islamic Republic. Less than two years later, Protest, another protest erupted uh, in November 2018 in response to the sudden implementation of the IMF, International Monetary, uh, Monetary Fund proposal, leading to a government decision to raise um, petrol prices over, um, uh, overnight. This resulted in another revolt. With an unknown number of casualties, the government responded uh, with mass killing, claiming uh, the lives of over 1,500 people in less than a month. In the following years, we witnessed a series of protests, including drought-related demonstration in Khuzestan in the south part of Iran and what became known as the Women Life Freedom Movement, often referred uh, to as the Jina Uprising. And can you tell us what are the characteristics of this uprising and why has it drawn such attention compared with the other protests you have described? Well, again, we, we can talk about uh, the attention that it gets because of different things. So technology, spread of information and yeah, but uh, I try to uh, emphasize on what makes Gino Uprising remarkable. Uh, this uprising, uh, in my idea, was remarkable uh, for several reasons. Uh, 
you know, over the course of the first 82 days of this uprising, uh, there were 444 protests involving more than 30 people held in 160 cities around 31 provinces. It's pretty much all over the country. So it was very, it, it, it was widespread. Students of 143 universities uh, protested 615 times in university campuses. Of course, the government severely suppressed and killed <clears throat> people. You know, at least 481 people, including 68 children and teenagers. In just one day, the government at least killed 90 Baluch people. You know, in Baluchistan, it's uh, in the southeast part of the Iran. In these 82 days, they arrested more than 17,000 people. This is the only for first 82 days of the uprising, as we can see that we have the valid and verified information. As we can see, the power of the government to brutally arrest and suppress is really high. What set this uprising apart and different from what we have seen in the past was, I think, is trigger. A woman from a periphery who was arrested for her hijab and subsequently killed in police custody. All these elements, I think, is, are very important. This event sparked outrage, obviously, particularly among Kurdish women who played a central role in initiating the protest by burning their hijab and their scarf on the, in Kurdistan, which followed by the call of feminist collective in Tehran and Rasht. So women agency and direction were pivotal during this uprising. This protest marked a departure from a previous demonstration as it saw fewer religious slogans. Women's call for action were not impulsive, but backed by decades of theoretical and grassroots activism. Socialist women collective with an intersectional perspective have emerged and some of the most progressive groups in Iran, offering detailed analysis of society. You've talked about the role of women in this response, and there's certainly in terms of the Western media attention, the broadcasts that we've seen, the interviews that we've heard, there's been a lot of focus on women protesters. Is that a fair representation of the response to Masa Amini's death? Or has there been participation in protests across the gender spectrum? Uh, well, um, you know, as I said, uh, women has a pivotal role in initiating the protest and highlighting uh, some of the main issues of the society. And also uh, feminist collective uh, was uh, among the first group to imagine a better future among the uprising. So if you, if you want to think about this as a feminist uprising, as sometimes called, uh, you know, in Western media, yes, we can call it feminist uprising. And also, you know, uh, it would be a, another conversation, to be honest, but uh, sometimes Western media have more attention when uh, there are women issue in third world country, because we know that it's a very good way to highlight uh, the contrast between we are very good and they are very backward. Look at them, how they treat women. Look at the poor women of the third world country. And they, yeah, I think it's another conversation. But um, uh, back to, to your question. Now, I think many uh, parts of the 
society they involved in uh, in this protest you know uh, the working class and deprived classes did not participate much uh, due to various reasons uh, we should admit that uh, we also emphasize uh, we should emphasize that the intensity of demonstration in Kurdistan and Sistan, Baluchistan, and of course the repression of the government in these places cannot be compared with other parts of Syria. You know, decades of political organization in Kurdistan has uh, created a different political atmosphere in that society, which of course will be very informative and uh, a source of inspiration, you know, inspiration, inspiration for Iranian. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if I answered your question. <laughs> and you also talked about inequality between the center in Tehran and yep. different regions of Iran, the more outer areas. What role did that play in drawing more people to respond to Masa Amini's death? Yeah, I'm using, uh, as you have noticed, I'm using the word system, you know, wording to uh, as a as core and periphery to highlight this, you know, uh, uneven situation between Tehran and other part of the Iran. And it's a result of uh, uh, more than 100 years, you know, since the shaping of mo uh, modern Iran shape and uh, all these communities suppressed. For sake of the, you know, uh, uniting the country and unifying one country, shaping modern Iran, and this just repeats in, you know, in Pahlavi era, in and in uh, Islamic Republic after 1979. So it's we can say the short answer is uh, as is a result of uneven capitalist development and uh, shaping of modern Iran. And moving beyond the protests. Would you like to talk uh, a little more about the diversity within Iranian society and how that's contributed to the response of different segments of society generally? Yeah, that that that's to, to be honest, it's very important and it's usually missed in the uh, picture that we see in uh, mainstream media. It's really crucial to recognize this diversity and. Uh, we should say not all segments respond in the same way to these developments. Uh, in earlier protests, like what happened in 2016, we observed that uh, some middle and wealthy classes remain on the sideline, while uh, certain reformist politicians and journalists even criticized the marginalized protesters. However, the response uh, to these events varied. Uh, some segments of uh, middle and prosperous classes express dissatisfaction with Islamic Republic also. They seek a society where obviously capitalist relations thrive, but social freedom also flourish without government intrusion into their private lives, as it's happened now in Iran. It's worth noting that environmental and drought-related protests sometimes pit a different group against each other, leading to a lack of support in most parts of the population as well. Nevertheless, the Jina uprising witnesses a widespread, uh, widespread backlash with reactionary patriotic slogan countering the woman life freedom message and highlighting the complexities of mobilizing uh, within a patriarchal society.
And that was Comran Motamedi, an Iranian researcher living in Nam, speaking about the development of protest prior to the Life Women Freedom Movement and the diversity of participation within sectors of society. Please join us next week uh, when we'll be hearing more about the role of misinformation, Western imperialism and capitalism in driving and obstructing Iranian resistance. And a note that the music played with this segment is a Farsi version of the famous Chilean protest song, The People Will Never Be Defeated, recorded by a Marxist group in 1978. Last year, on one of the hottest days of the Gina uprising and amid stressful security conditions, art and music students at Tehran University of Art gathered to perform their version of the song. We're going to take a listen to that now. And when we come back, we'll be talking about The Voice. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast.
to her big blue eyes This is what I saw October is the month for all your country and Americana good times. Asleep at the Wheel, Thornby Theatre with Summer Dean on the 13th. Melissa Carper, Brunswick Ballroom on the 16th. Willie Watson at the Mimo Music Hall on the 19th. Thornby Theatre on the 20th. And Menian Town Hall on the 21st. Jenny Don't and the Spurs, the Pink Stones and the Burrs Band play Brunswick Ballroom on the 12th and the Barwon Club Geelong on the 13th. All this and more this October. Love Police supports 3CR. Vibe Union is bringing exciting, ongoing showcases of local talent across Melbourne. This creative collective provides a supportive platform to upcoming artists, hosting poetry open mic nights, intimate singer-songwriter evenings, and hip-hop showcases. Head along to one of their events for a welcoming night of creativity, or see how you can get involved at vibeunion.com.au. Vibe Union is a 3CR supporter. We know you love listening to 3CR, but we also know that many of you haven't downloaded the Community Radio Plus app yet. The app lets you tune in anywhere and share the station with your friends. So, show the love and share the love and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. In DigiTube, people place language. Connecting stories, culture and language across Australia. Contribute your content in digitube.com.au. Sign up for a free account and select your options for streaming. Download and broadcast promotion. A 3CR supporter. And you're listening to 3CR Breakfast. Welcome back. And we're now going to go to a discussion on the Voice to Parliament referendum coming up on October 14th. A reminder to anyone listening, if you haven't registered to vote in the referendum, please do. And uh, please tune in to all the information that you can get your hands on to make an informed decision about how you're going to cast your vote. 3CR. And we have uh, Associate Professor Janine Lane on the line. Professor Janine Lane is a Wiradjuri writer, teacher and academic from southwest New South Wales. She is currently a writer in residence at the University of Melbourne School of Culture and Communication and is a supporter of A Voice to Parliament here to talk about respect, truth and messaging in the referendum. Good morning, Janine. Good morning, Claudia. Nice to have you with us. Thank you. Um, I'm joining you today from um, Ngunnawal and Nambri country in um, Canberra. Excellent. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background as a writer before we jump into The Voice and yeah. the referendum? Yeah, um, I'm a, a creative writer. Um, I'm an author of poetry, um, fiction, creative non-fiction, essay and literary critique. Um, and I've published quite extensively over the last you know, two decades or so on in the areas of Aboriginal writing, Aboriginal self-representation, what's at stake in representation, 
um, writing otherness and developing culturally rigorous literary critique for First Nations literature. And I have been a teacher for 40 years across um, secondary initially, but the last 23 years in the tertiary sector as a researcher as, and, and as a teacher. Um, and I'm just moving into uh, out of teaching a bit more at the moment and into full-time writing. Thank you. Sounds uh, very comprehensive. Thank you. Now, your recent article published in uh, Overland called The Ballot Box Does Not Translate Ideology talked about the forthcoming referendum and made a number of uh, interesting points which I thought uh, would be worthy of our listeners' attention. Before we jump into your views on that, do you want to just run through what your position is on The Voice, why you're a Yes supporter? Yes, I am a Yes supporter because I think it's an important opportunity for First Nations people to, to have a voice constitutionally enshrined in the Parliament. We are the only settler colony, a uh, former British colony that doesn't have that. Um, and it's a referendum. I've lived through quite a few referendums. I was five and a half when the 1967 referendum happened. So I have quite a clear memory of that. Um, and so it is a referendum. So it's a, it's a, there's only one proposal on the table. It's not an election. Um, and this one opportunity may not come again. And I'm supporting the voice because I think it's a really important opportunity. Um, and I don't accept the status quo for my people in this nation. And I think that certainly while a voice will not solve everything, um, it's an important avenue for implementing much needed and much overdue changes in health, in education, in jobs, in housing, in the justice system. And in your article, you mentioned uh, the criticism that's been made by some media outlets and others that the Yes campaign has, has not got their message out clearly or it's getting the wrong message out. What, um, what's your response in yeah, relation look, to I've, that? Yeah, thank you. I was responding particularly to the word sell. I hear the word sell a lot. Um, yes, I have often heard in terms of criticism, um, mainly from a demographic of middle-class white men that I see on, you know, current affairs or um, that that I do watch. But you hear some criticism about the campaign is not selling the message. I hear the verb selling, selling, selling all the time. And, um, you know, given the approaching referendum proposes to alter the Constitution to recognise First Nations peoples of Australia establishing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice, I'm not sure how much more that can be embellished and shouldn't have to be embellished anymore. Um, and, the, you know, this constant echo that it is not selling the message. Um, I think this commodification of the truth is unfortunate and it obscures the um, deeper socio-cultural values at the heart of this message of the voice or messages more broadly when you commodify a message as, or when you commodify truth 
as something to be sold to people. And that is, you know, automatically in competition to untruth. And I think a good question is, should you really have to sell a simple and powerful truth um, and when it is focusing on on a simple truth and on a simple question? And I don't know how much more that needs to be embellished or how much more altruistic that really needs to be. So, yeah, that, that verb around selling selling the message um, mm. was reductionist for me, which was one of the reasons why I did write that article um, where I said that the voice was a generous offer from First Nations people and an important call to the truth-telling that this nation needs. And on truth-telling, um, yeah, I want to just draw that dangerous link there between the idea that truth-telling is can be dangerously commodified like it is in some of these discussions mm. around, you know, you've got to sell your message and then that comes with the interpretive baggage that to sell a message you've got to embellish it. And, uh, you know, I don't see why as a society that... Uh, that's desirable and it, it it shifts things away from a frank discussion around truth and it sends people off in all sorts of directions searching for ways to kind of like, I don't know, jazz something up or sell something um, and, you know, focus on things that aren't necessarily needed to be focused on. And you also talked about the importance of respect in engaging with the debates and the different views around the referendum. I How did. have you managed expressing your views? You have strong views, um, but you've managed to express them in a respectful way throughout the discussion. What, what's been your thinking and the way that you've managed to do this? Yeah, I have been, and I speak to quite a lot of people on a daily basis and, and see a lot of students. Um, respectful discussion is, for me, and this is the way I run, you know, set classrooms uh, up as well, respectable discussion is about calmly and persuasively and with great conviction presenting a case or an argument but presenting it and arguing for it and demonstrating it, not like selling it. And um, it is also to respectfully listen to uh, other concerns or other opinions or other views that may be in the room, which doesn't mean you can't speak back to them, but it has to be done in an appropriate tone and an appropriate manner. And it is important that um, views can be aired um, and that open discussion is had. And often open discussion without this idea of hard sell or embellishment, just very open but very um, frank discussion about what's this going to do and what's it not going to do 
is um, the way that I have managed that. And other discussions around contentious issues or potentially contentious issues in my classroom. So you mentioned the classroom environment. What's been your observation amongst the students that you're teaching and in terms of the way discussions about the referendum are evolving? Yep. Um, They have been a very... I've found, on the whole, the younger cohort of people, which are mainly the student cohort, have been very engaged and really quite interested and really... In some cases, confused, but importantly, having a place to come to to um, to debrief about that because there is a lot of misinformation out there. So I've found quite a lot of people to be engaged and to really want to cut through. Um, it's opened up a lot of discussions in classrooms around the potential danger um, of social media in these situations and the way social media can be co-opted. And the way, particularly because we're all writers, we're talking about writing, the way certain things are co-opted and excerpted so that you, you people are, bits and pieces of people's phrases are excerpted out of context and then re-quoted, um, either in the media and the social media. And so we've had a lot of productive discussions around that kind of misrepresentation and that kind of um, skewing of messages away from the actual messages in favour of focusing quite unproductively on individuals. Have your students uh, put forward any suggestions about the best way to counter misinformation or or use their their power as 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 young writers to put truth-based fact-checked information into the public arena we have talked about it and we have you know the best way to do it is i think what a lot of people think the best way to do it is a you need to be aware of what sort of misinformation is out there and then you need to be well informed to be able to counter that both as a writer and in your day-to-day conversations with people. Um, Most people shift their views due to the influence of others around them. Um, So to be able to use um, the more comprehensive information that people have gathered and to be able to take... um, to, to be able to report on more extensive and progressive discussions has been um, a way that a lot of people have agreed is the way forward. Yeah, I think a lot of the media landscape is aimed to provide information and uh, messaging in such short, accessible bites that exactly. the, the onus is really on the consumer of that information to to have to put in a bit more effort, actually, to critique whatever they read, but also to search for balanced opinion and information. It has been a very good opportunity in class to 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 practice and to look at critical literacy skills, how to read things mm. critically and how to really critically examine things taken out of context and how can you change a complete 
message just by misquoting or taking mm. someone out of a context. And it has been very good in terms of the rigorous... It's been very productive in terms of the rigorous discussions we've been able to have around critical reading. And what a great subject to immerse oneself in to undertake that exercise when it's a question yeah. being put to the whole uh, Australian community. Yeah. So you mentioned you were five and a half when the, the 1967 nine, referendum was held. I was. Can you tell us before we wrap up what, what you remember about that referendum? Yes. Um, I remember that although I remember it from a child's point of view, I still remember so many people had a lot to say about about us as Aboriginal people. And it wasn't always negative, that's true. There were supporters. But um, I do remember the situation of just feeling like you're stuck in someone else's story and everyone else is talking about you. And um, I also remember something my aunt said, because there were people then who presented elaborate arguments either way about the referendum, why they might vote yes or why they might vote no. Um, but at the end of the day, my aunt said something like, at the end of the day in the ballot box, it all looks the same. And, you know, it's either a yes or a no. And I think that's what motivated my article a lot because I know that the um, the no side is not amorphous and there's a progressive no movement there that I, progressive black sovereign movement, sovereignty movement there, whose aims I really respect and they're an older, the movement has a lot, much longer and deeper history than the um, more conservative no opposition. But at the end of the day, those two no's will look the same on the ballot paper. Mm. And as you uh, pointed out with the, the last referendum in 1999 in relation to the monarchy, that the no's won out, yet 24 years later, there hasn't been any new models put to the Australian people on, on that question. Been, so, yeah. yeah, exactly. I remember the 1999 referendum, you know, very clearly, and I was in my 30s then, um, and while a huge, you know, there was quite overwhelming support, but you could feel it on the ground just with people that you talked to. Um, and I was working in schools at the time. I knew a lot of people. Um, there was quite a lot of support for a republic, but people were genuinely unhappy with the model because John Howard inserted a preamble and in that doing that managed to split the yes support and... I think that the Australian public underestimated the situation given that there was so much strong support for a republic and there still appears to be, but that they thought that they would get another chance. And as you said, not even a whiff of another chance of a republic has ever come our way. It hasn't even been put on the agenda again as any with any serious due consideration. We're going to have to wrap up, unfortunately, coming to the end of our program. But I'd like to thank you for your time this morning and sharing your perspectives on this um, such an important decision for the Australian people on October the 14th. 
Thank you. Um, thank you for having me. And I just urge everyone who's listening to think very carefully between now and October the 14th because it is a one-shot opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. That was Wiradjuri writer Janine Lane talking to us about the voice referendum. I think that's it for our show this week. It certainly is, Claudia. That's an interesting discussion and you could just talk for that for hours. There's a, there's a whole different uh, space to look into that, uh, only given only a couple of weeks ago until that referendum is held. Exactly. All right. Well, thanks for our listeners joining us this morning and thanks to all our guests. Thanks to you, Pat, and uh, we'll see you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.